Hi, and welcome to The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. Uh, my name is Corey Johnson, and this is the show where I talk to uh, a variety of people about uh, current events and uh, political philosophy sometimes, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, today I'm joined with by uh, Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards and uh, a variety of other, a million other podcasts at this point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh too many yeah, podcasts. Like, uh so I know uh you're kind of the go-to guy for a lot of people on fascism and uh like the rise of fascism fascism in the US right now. But I want to get I I appreciate being the go-to guy on fascism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been I read David mm-hmm. Nywert's book uh The Rise Newer. Yeah, Newer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. great. I yeah. read his book a while back, and then I interviewed him uh, that year. I think it was 2018. And, uh, yeah, so then I've been following that. Who, the people to follow on fascism in the United States and Canada for the last couple of years. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about uh, how you got to the philosophy you hold now and uh, what your views are kind of thing. Um Jeez. Yeah, that's a big question, um, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I was raised very conservative, which I, I talk about a fair amount. You know, I, my, my parents are still both pretty right wing. I don't know if they voted for Trump this time. We're not on the best of terms, but they vote, voted for him the first time. Um, they're Reagan Republicans, you know, like. Um, okay. And um, so I grew up and, it, and it's weird because like people expect because of how how into guns and stuff that I am that like, that was a big part of my childhood. And I did start shooting when I was young, you know, I grew up on a little farm in Oklahoma and uh, my uncle taught me, I was maybe six, seven when my uncle taught me how to shoot and we had to clear a pond out of these invasive snapping turtles and shit. And, you know, I cleaned deer and all that stuff. But like my parents never owned a firearm. Um, and it wasn't really like, I would do it at camp. I would do it with my uncle. Um, their conservatism was not, you know, what it has become, which isn't to say that it was, you know, markedly less toxic, but like gun culture wasn't really what it is now right. back then. And conservatism was like, they, it was taxes and shit for them. Yeah. Um, and I, it, that started to change in my late teens, you know, Fox was always on the Iraq war was a real turning point for a lot of okay. that stuff. Um, and it started to get more performative and more culture war the older that I got. Um, and yeah, I, I bought into all of it pretty hard. I think a big thing for me in terms of getting out of it was I did speech and debate as a kid. Um, I was a very, very good speech and debate student. Like I got to nationals in Philly one year and stuff. Um, but it was just kind of like, you know, one of the things that speech and debate does, there's a lot of problems with it, which is why so many, uh, quote unquote debaters like Ben Shapiro are such a top <laughs> yeah. part of our national discourse at the moment. But one of the good things that the debate does is that if you're going to compete, you have to create the best affirmative and negative case you possibly can for each mm-hmm. argument. And we would have arguments that would kind of break down on a right-left line. And I would agree, like, with the right-wing, you know, sort of take on it. But that would always be the harder argument to make. Like, And, <laughs> and so that was a part of it for me is, like, why is it so much harder to make a good argument for the thing I believe? Right. Um, <laughs> That's a good but, point. But, you know, it's it's a mark of the amount of. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the big thing for me is when I moved away to college, I wound up befriending and I started dating a um, a woman who was an indigenous woman. Uh, it was the first person that I ever had like a serious relationship with. 
Um, and you know, our friends, people I would like play D and D with and stuff or like one of them was, um, was a Mexican American. And I had never, you know, my school was actually very diverse. Plano, Texas is super diverse, but it's mostly like, like the dominant, like non-white folks who were in my school were like, um, Southeast Asian, a uh, lot of Indian students, a lot of, um, Korean, okay. uh, Taiwanese, Chinese. Um, I didn't know a lot of, uh, Hispanic or black kids growing up. Um, and so going to college, I started to meet those people and, and, and started to talk to them about their experience about like stuff with law enforcement. Cause I was in college initially to get a criminal justice degree. I wanted to be in the FBI at one point. <laughs> um, and it was just sort of a process of hearing the way that the, like stories from their lives, um, and just kind of reading more and experiencing the world more that by about age, like really before I was 19, I no longer considered myself conservative. Now I was libertarian for a couple of years because right around that period, <laughs> I discovered drugs. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and I started buying guns. So for a couple of years there, I was like, I was a libertarian, but I was a, like, whatever you want to do is fine. Um, uh, also drugs and guns should be unregulated. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it kind of things, I'm still more or less there in some ways. I just don't like what libertarians believe. And I, I, I'm a big, you know, again, having friends who were disabled, you know, um, who had uh, uh, significant long-term health issues convinced me of the need for, um, you know, a, some sort of robust healthcare infrastructure and safety net and stuff. And um, yeah, that was kind of the, that's, I guess that's the journey in broad. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Uh, do you mind me asking how old you are? <laughs> uh, 32. Okay. So you're still quite a bit younger than I am, <laughs> but but, uh, I can recall, uh, my dad was, uh, has always been a conservative as well. Uh, but in Canada, it was Brian Mulroney was the prime minister yeah. that he was like on board with all that, uh, uh, conservative stuff. And yeah, he, he, I never, I also never ever was, uh, had guns in the house. We didn't, we had one gun. We lived on a farm. And mm -hmm. it was for shooting rodents, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's your it's your vermin gun. It's, uh, you got, yeah, I make guns and like yeah, you have your. I really, I actually am a big fan of like very specific kinds of firearms. Yeah. I had like a little waiting snake gun when I was younger. That was, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, it would, it would send shells flying out. It was a little like 20 gauge and it would send shells just like flying out when you break it open. The gun weighed maybe like a pound and a half, little pistol grip <laughs> shotgun. And it would like, whenever people shot it for the first time, they would open it and they would hit themselves like right in the face and make them bleed and stuff. And I would never warn people because it's funny. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Sorry. Yeah, no worries. It's, uh, yeah, so I can kind of relate a little bit to that kind of, like being raised conservative, but then somewhere along the line, switching teams almost <laughs> like, yeah, I guess. Uh, so about uh, libertarianism, where did you uh, kind of, what made you veer off from, from that? In some ways I never did. I think a big part of like what was actually going on is I was mistaking I think in some ways, once I became a person, uh, and you're not really a full person as a kid, you know, right, right. Um, once I became a full person, I was kind of always an anarchist. I just didn't really know what that was. And libertarian within sort of the, the structure of the world as I knew it, libertarian was the thing that made the most sense. Um, and I am like, if I were going to like, 
you know, there, the, uh, if I were going to like say like, what if, you know, what do I think the world should be like? Like some sort of libertarian socialist kind of structure makes the most sense. And I think is the thing that also I can point to people have done it and live millions of people live under some variant of this. And, right. you know, clearly this system can be made to work in certain ways. And like, let's give that a shot. You know, that would be my, I'm very practical about like, because for me, there's a difference between kind of not what I advocate for others and what I advocate for myself, but like what I'm comfortable with and what I think can be done on a larger scale. Right. Because like personally, to be entirely honest, if it's just me, I would rather live out in the middle of nowhere with a small group of people and like fuck roads and fuck a healthcare system and fuck any of that. But like, I don't advocate that for society. Cause that's <laughs> right. Like, uh, like I'm a, I'm a robust, healthy, like young white male. Like I'm, I'm willing to like go roll the dice. I don't have any fucking kids. Like I don't care if I get caught in a bear trap or some shit. Right. Um, I just hate being around lots of people. Um, but I don't advocate that for society. That you wouldn't have a society. You'd have warring tribes of or cliques of people in the woods shooting each other. Yeah, which is probably not a good call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if maybe smaller communities might not be a way to go. But yeah, <laughs> I think small interlocking, smaller interlocking communities uh, with the odd city that I think would be smaller than cities are now, um, but acting as sort of like a trading hub and you have a lot of regional autonomy within those areas. You know, one of the things I think about, one of the things that I thought about in Rojava a lot was, and this is kind of a dicey thing to talk about because <laughs> it doesn't really make anyone entirely happy, but one of the things they do over there, you know, you have this, the self-administration, which is a, a an extraordinarily progressive um, ideology behind it. And you also have them ha being, you know, through necessity, working with and fighting alongside people who are like, we would consider them religious extremists, very right. conservative Muslims and such. Um, and like Yazidis are also a lot of like, that's a very conservative religion in a lot of ways. And, and so they have had to find a way to integrate this. Um, and, kind of thread a very difficult needle that we the, the the needle the needle that has to be threaded threaded is we need these people on our side we don't want to fight them we can't really afford to just fight them um we want them fighting alongside us they believe things that are anathema to us mm. um but also we believe they have a right to live their lives the way that they want how do we thread those needles not let them oppress people, but let them, but not oppress them ourselves. Yeah. And in America, we decide to just shout at each other and spend years on the verge of a civil war over issues <laughs> like this. One of the things yeah. they do over there, and there's criticism, there's definitely valid criticism to the system, but it makes a lot of sense to me. You have these things, the women's houses that like, okay, you guys are a patriarchal, very conservative, you know, religious society. You get to be that, but you have to have this building where if your women don't want to fucking do that shit, if they decide they're not happy, they go there, we take them somewhere else and they get to do like whatever the fuck it is they want to do. And I think that could be in a situation where you see things break down, you know, it, it, assuming things break down more than they already have. I think that could be one way to avoid fatal conflicts between okay. yeah. communities that are religiously conservative and communities are, that are progressive, you know? Um, I don't know how likely that is, but it, it struck me as when I, when I was over there having it explained to me, I was like, oh, that actually might work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, the, uh, the, yeah, it's a knife's edge, Sorry. right? But, <laughs> but, but yeah, it, yeah, it can work, it's, but it's, yeah, it's that narrow balance that's. It's not pretty and everyone wants to say no, like, you know, things should be like, and they, they should be right. Like people shouldn't live in. 
societies where, you know, you're oppressed based on your sexuality or your, your gender. But if the alternative is a giant gunfight or like people who want to leave that conservative society can and will take care of them, that one seems better to me than giant gunfight. But I'm not a huge fan of gunfights. Right. Yeah. <laughs> people get hurt in those. Yeah, they, they tend to. That's kind of the downside of gunfights. Yeah. They're great on camera, though. Holy oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I guess this isn't really in line with what I, where we were going with the conversation, but uh, I've often kind of thought that the American gun culture uh, was, by and large, a product of what they see on screen. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. Very much action movie oriented. Well, and it's not just America. You know, do you know who Tim Hetherington was? Doesn't ring a bell. So I talk a lot about Sebastian Younger, who's probably my favorite journalist. He wrote a wonderful book called Tribe that is just a, a masterpiece. And he's a, a very experienced war correspondent. He's done like a lot of work in Africa, which is like if you if you report on wars like reporting from like Liberia, the Congo, that's like that is as intense as it gets right. in that field. Um, so he, in, in his partner for years and years was this photojournalist, Tim Hetherington. And Tim was killed in Libya at the start of that civil war. Okay. Uh, a mortar clipped, I think, is femoral artery. It's a very sad story. But the the piece he was there to do is when when the fighting started, he was looking at the very first pictures coming out of Libya of these young men, 18, 19, early 20s, with guns for the first time, who hadn't been soldiers before, largely. And he was looking at the way they held themselves and the way they dressed themselves and the way they were posing for the cameras. And he was recognizing specific movie posters. Right. And that's the thing he wanted to go over there to shoot, because like it was this generation who had been raised on a lot of Hollywood movies because even in Qaddafi's Libya, you could get a lot of these, you know, Schwarzenegger movies and stuff. Sure. And it was informing the way that they were going into this conflict. And that was kind of the thing he wanted to capture. And I've always felt that was a fucking good idea. <laughs> so he was <laughs> yeah, a great photo journalist. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're actually like a legitimate journalist. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then, like not, not regularly, but as a, as a, as a hobby. Yeah. So how did you get into that? Um, you know, I, uh, it was a cracked, I got hired and, uh, my boss then is the same as my boss now, Jack O'Brien. And, you know, when I got hired at cracked, it was just my job to like lay out articles, code them into the CMS. I would come up with like caption jokes under all the pictures, like for years, if okay. you like yep. every cracked article of pictures, the captions, it was, I was the one who did them. Um, and then when he hired me on as salary, he just took away all of my work. <laughs> instead of finding something else to do, oh. which is why Jack is a great boss. Um, and so I had to find something else to do. And I pitched this idea of like interviewing people and basically finding a way to take like, like journalism based around sort of like people's stories of their own lives and their jobs and experiences and like turn it into list based articles. Um, and so we did that. Like our first article was I like, I talked to a guy who makes swords and knives for a living about like nice. things movies get wrong about swords. And that eventually led to me like having this kind of plat, like we talked to drone pilots and I, you know, a lot of really interesting shit. Um, and I, the first thing I did that was actually real journalism was probably well no i went to i went to it was probably yeah the ukrainian um revolution of 2014 the maidan um and i wasn't there but i spent two three weeks talking to a couple of dozen people i think by the time it was all over just long skype interviews watching hours of streaming footage wow. um from the front line and i wrote a big article about it and i think that was my first real piece of conflict journalism wow. and 
you know, the next year I actually went to Ukraine um, and and reported from there. And, you know, the, the refugee trail uh, when the Syrian refugee crisis really got bad. And then from there to Iraq uh, to now Syria. And then Portland. <laughs> yeah. And then Portland. Yeah. <laughs> That's I guess that's uh, yeah. your new podcast, right? This is uh, all yeah. about that stuff. Yeah. You know, I've worn body armor in a few different parts of the world, but I've never had anything hit it until Portland. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, not bullets, but yeah, I mean, rubber bullets, but like, yeah, not not serious bullets. Good thing you had some on like that's. Yeah, no, it'll fuck you up. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. So in the line of anarchism, uh, what kind of. Uh, I guess what kind of anarchist? I guess you said libertarian socialist mostly, eh? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, uh, I guess there's a few different types of anarchists. Like there's, uh, yeah, there's a fuck like <laughs> primitive, yeah, absolutely primitivists. I know a lot of people don't like. Yeah. Um, I've always I like I used to identify as like a an anarcho syndicalist because I'm very pro union, very uh, uh, labor oriented, um, but somebody pointed out to me, I think it was a YouTuber, uh, anarcho pack, uh, pointed out that, uh, anarcho syndicalism is actually like, is actually a step towards anarcho communism. <laughs> so it's like, sure. so I, I start I started labeling myself that way, but, uh, how, how does, I guess your anarchism, like, uh, how is it informed and how do you use it in your day to day? Yeah. So I, I am, I try to stay very humble when it comes to how I think the world should be. Like I'm not an insurrectionist, um, although I'm not against insurrectionists and there's a number of them I have a lot of respect for. Um, I don't know what's going to work to beat capitalism to replace it to like fix <laughs> yeah, everything that's hard. like i don't know and nobody does exactly like that, that's try to kind of where i try to be so when it comes to what i advocate for and what i push for and like what i do every day the way that like the, the way that my anarchism guides me is that i think you should always be or that i should always be this is the thing that i do working at if if you can't tear them down because you generally can't tear down hierarchies on your own you should be trying to weaken them, right? Like trying to going in, like if you see it as a bridge and just like drilling out little holes and hoping enough other people do it that it collapses one of those days. So that's like, that's kind of in, in way, in a way what behind the bastards is doing. Cause it's, 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 it's been from the beginning, both I wanted, you know, I think there's a lot of history about colonialism in particular. That's important for people for to sure. know, but kind of in a broader sense, the thing that I, I think the show really does well is it educates people about the ways in which dangerous people do tremendous damage to our civilization. And those ways, whether you're, you know, a grifter selling drinking bleach or Adolf Hitler, the ways in which people do that to each other are all actually very similar. And when you study it enough, and I, I think this is one of the conclusions the show leads you to, when you study enough how people like that do it, the main way to make yourself more resilient to people like that, to the bad actors in our society, to the monsters. The main way to defend from them is to build a society where individual people are less able to hold power, right? right. Where people have, and that there's a number of things that go along with that, including reducing what, if not reducing the amount of wealth people can have, reducing what wealth means. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, yeah. it's all about like, and I think that's 
so that's really like what I try to do with that show is I, I try to lead people down a lot of the same intellectual kind of realizations that I had that led me into being an anarchist in the hopes that like enough people will make the same decision. And if they don't, if they stay, you know, a Democrat or a, a, a Trotskyist or whatever the hell they are, like, I don't care what, what you are, but like, right. um, then they at least come away a little bit more resilient to scam artists, to cult leaders, to, to, to authoritarians, to right. like, to to the fucking predators in our midst, right? That's the that's part of the goal, and I think that making people, even if they never consider themselves anarchists, making people more resilient to predators is anarchist praxis. You know? Yeah, uh, that sounds really good to me. <laughs> I've uh, have you found uh, like any like pushback from uh, people on the left who are more pro authoritarian or more? Uh, Oh, you know, only on Twitter. <laughs> I had a, I actually had a wonderful moment at a Portland protest last year. So before, like, the protest, everybody knows, just one of the, the Proud Boys were rallying late 2019, and um, a couple of thousand people showed out to, like, flip them off, basically. There were a couple of little fights around the edges, but I wasn't particularly close to them that year. Um, it was just, like, a whole thing. And um, I was, like, standing under an overpass where this, like, line of people is screaming at the cops, and... Um, there is this like little young woman, but I don't actually know if she was an adult. Like she very well, just judging by sort of the size in her voice, she might've been like 14 or 15. Okay. Um, and she looks up to me and she says, are you Robert Evans? And I say, yeah. And she says, I like your podcast. And then she pauses a beat and then says, I wish you were more radical. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, okay. I enjoyed that a lot. Like, yeah, you know, um, but I've never, I've never had like the, like I, on, on Twitter and shit, like I have tankies and, and stuff come after me from time to time, but like it's Twitter, you know, yeah. I've, I've never run into those people in, in the real wild. life. <laughs> yeah. Even when I've met people in real life who are like Marxist Leninists and stuff, like it's generally, I meet them cause they're like, you know, feeding people at a riot, uh, and I'm filming, you know, or whatever. And, you know, we're, we're, we're on the same side. Like I've, as a general rule, I think the kind of, I, like not to downplay the dangers of some aspects of sort of the regressive left. Cause I, I do think there's some real concerns in terms of like harassment and stuff. I, I just don't run into them a lot in the, in right. the actual world. That kind of makes me think like I I've talked to, uh, I've got a few friends who are like, they can, they consider themselves Marxist Leninists or even a couple yeah, people who, are, fine. who sure. are like, they're kind of on the tanky spectrum a little bit or, um, or class reductionists or what have you. Um, sure. But one of their main things is they, they really hate identity politics. So I'm wondering, yeah, like, what oh, okay. is what is your yeah. take on quote-unquote identity politics? I mean, <sighs> I think there's a couple of things I think about that. One of them is you can't reduce everything to identity politics, but you sure as hell can't pretend that it 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 isn't. God, this is. I I think um, it's a trap. <laughs> if you if you are, I, I it's it's hard to like phrase this in a way that doesn't sound kind of um, like if you are not down to fight for trans people, to fight for black liberation, to fight for indigenous liberation, um, to fight for you know liberation of migrants, uh, open borders. Um, 
then like, how are you on my fucking side? <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's where I, I that's am fair. on that. Like, yeah. I don't know the, the term identity politics is a bunch of different fucking definitions. That's how I feel. Like yeah, those are no. the, all of those fights are part of the same fight. Yeah. Um, and they're fighting against the same thing. And that doesn't mean that like the tactics are the same because they are all like, they're different, different sets of problems and stuff, but like, they're all the causes of all of those things are broadly speaking, the same system, which needs to, uh, you know, Minecraft, whatever, like, you know, what I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, we need to do something about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some some ought to be done about that. <laughs> yeah, if only. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, I'm kind of shooting random questions at you here. <laughs> sure. What actually initiated Behind the Bastards? Um, you know, I've always been just a huge fan of Hitler, like just a big <laughs> Hitler fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I dropped out of college. I never graduated um, because I, I started working as a writer and I just said like, well, this is the only thing I ever want to do with my life. What, what's more college going to do for me to get me more debt? But the thing that I did like about college, the only classes that I liked in college that I got something out of is I was uh, on the track for a degree in Holocaust studies. Okay. Um, yeah. And I loved those courses, particularly the ones on the Holocaust in the media and how it's represented. Um, but I've always been very fascinated by the Holocaust. Um, and as a result, also very interested in the Nazis. And like, you know, for, for years, my career didn't really intersect that much. I'd write every now and then I wrote a couple of articles. Like I wrote an article for Cracked years ago that was kind of like a proto bastards article it was like weird facts about the nazis that talked about like hitler and his bullwhip and his okay um like stuff like that um and and it talked about carl may his like love of that weird german fantasy author um but uh i i i just kept finding myself like obsessed with this stuff and like reading obsessively like different like i i would read different i read ever i think i've read all of the big biographies of hitler um, and I've read, uh, a lot of different books about like, they like, I read rise and fall of the third Reich. I don't know how many times, um, which is a great book still. You have to, the, um, the guy who wrote it, um, Shirer was a very, very good journalist, somewhat homophobic, not out of step with the times, but definitely like he's a dude from who was writing in the thirties, yeah. you know? So definitely like, homophobic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely homophobic, not like in a, again, not aggressively for the time like not like a, an exterminationist kind of, okay. kind of dude but just like you know kind of what you'd expect from the time but a very skilled journalist who talked to hitler interviewed hitler interviewed all of these different figures and is an irreplaceable source on the rise of this so i i, I was obsessively reading all of this stuff just for years and years and i never really knew why um and then you know 2015 2016 it started to make sense um and 2017, you know, uh, was when Cracked was kind of going downhill and we were all trying, like, scrambling to make it work. And I was also, I took, like, three trips to Mosul um, okay. during the fighting there. And I, my relationship with my wife uh, collapsed, which was hard. It was just a horrible year. Um, and I kind of started, as things started to 
level off near the end of the year and I started to like be a human being again, I had this idea that I wanted to do a series, a podcast series that was about the Nazis. It was everything you don't know about the Nazis. And it was going to be like a 10 episode, you know, 10 hour long mini series about all these incredible details that I'd learned over the years that I thought people needed to know. And, you know, I, I was going in to pitch that, to uh Alex uh, Alex Schmidt our who is our head of podcasts on the day okay. they let us all go. Um so you know I spent a couple of weeks getting drunk and then um <laughs> Jack calls me and he's like hey like I'm doing podcasts now do you want to um do you have anything to pitch and I pitch him the same idea but this time I add like so we'll do one season on the Nazis and then I'll do a season about Saddam Hussein and his regime and a season on Mao and you know like that. Right. Um and there's actually now a new podcast, Real Dictators or something, that seems like basically my old premise. Okay. And Jack was like, that sounds good. Why don't you just do a different topic each episode? And you can cover all the same stuff over time, but like you can have more variety. And I said, yeah, sure. And, uh, turns out to be something people want. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah. it's the, I guess, it's one of those really good resources for somebody who just doesn't needs like a surface level of uh, information. Uh, I mean, you go pretty deep and do, but it's, it's also hard to absorb everything in and yeah. three hours or two hours or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I have, I have my areas of strength and my areas of weakness. One of the things I don't want to like give away future projects, but like, um, I would like to be able to do a better job of covering, for example, Chinese history, Southeast Asian history, right. um, which I'm never going to be the right person for because there is, you know, there, there's a, there's a level of baseline understanding you have about a, a region's history. Like I, I have, I have forced myself to learn enough about Africa that I can do the ap episodes that are set in different African countries that I have, but it's always the hardest episodes I write because I just, um, even Latin America is easier just because I grew up in Texas and I've spent time in Central America and it's a bit more familiar to me. Right. Yeah. Um, it's just so hard. That's why the episodes focus so much on Europe and on, on the United States and people from those areas is because that history is just inherently e easier for me to do. But like, I haven't covered a lot of indigenous history in North America because, it's, it's very hard, you know, um, it, it's, it's difficult for me. And it, it's not just that it's difficult because it, it's always difficult. Like right. the episodes that I write, I take a lot of research. I, I'm not convinced that I could do a lot of it well. And so that's some of the stuff we have planned for 2021 are kind of ways to, to fill those holes I mean, and also, um, hopefully have it be someone who's like not, not me doing it but in that same style. So these are some things that we have okay. planned. We'll see what actually happens. So how much, how fast do you actually read? <laughs> like, I mean, I can read if it's a 60,000, 70,000 word book, you know, if I make it a, a six to eight hour day, I can read a book, you know, wow. um, something like that. And you can just sit and read a book. Yeah. I, I mean, it's actually kind of a curse. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's necessary, right? Well, I suppose, when I yeah. was a kid, yeah, like I said, I grew up on a farm and we didn't have, I didn't have like, um, I, I eventually got like a fucking Nintendo, but I didn't have one for a while. And we only had, uh, we didn't have Cartoon Network. We only had Nickelodeon. So I, I, there would only be like an hour or two of TV a day. And I didn't really have friends because again, I lived on a cow farm in the middle of nowhere. So I just had a dog. Um, <laughs> and from an early age, my parents would just read to me all the time. And I started reading pretty young. And by the time I was like, 
nine or 10, I was reading like, like Michael Crichton was my first, like the first big books I read, oh, like wow. the lost world. And cause I was super into dinosaurs and shit. Um, and I just was the entirety of my life up to like age 18, 19, never without a book. And I would usually, if we were going out, like I was going out with my mom or something when I was a kid to go to like errands, I would usually have two books cause I'd always finish one and I would be like miserable if I didn't have a second <laughs> book to start reading right away. Um, and it's so it was like a curse for most of my life because I would like be really into a book that I'd loved and then it would be over and then I would like have to find something else to read. Um, but now I it's become the only way that I can do my job. So I guess that's good. Yeah, I guess I guess it's a required skill. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I uh, I don't know. I, I used to when I was a teenager, I read pretty voraciously. And uh, I don't know, ever since I started playing on the Internet, tw like so much, I cannot sit and read a book for more than 30 minutes at a time. It's definitely had an impact. And I usually fiddle with guns in the middle of like, you know, I'll pause every couple of pages and, and play with a bullet or something like I need to do something. I'll check Twitter. Like um, <laughs> it definitely fucks up uh, stuff a little bit, but yeah, about a book a day. If it's not a long book, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Like I can't even remember the last time I read a book all the way through. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 ideally, if I felt like I could do it and I felt like I could responsibly do it and like what I was doing wasn't needed, I would, I would like to just write fiction and nonfiction. I would like to put out like one book every year and not do anything else and live on a farm in the mountains and shoot <laughs> trespassers. Right. That, that's, yeah. that's like the dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did so I, we'll see. did I yeah. see on Twitter that you actually have a, a book coming out? Another one? Yeah, I, I wrote a fiction book okay. um, during my my the year where I like almost died from PTSD. Um, and I, I spent the year after that, it was 2017, and I spent 2018 editing it. And then 2019, kind of just sitting on it. I'd go back at it every now and then. And then a little bit later this year, like a couple of friends hounded me and I let them read it. And they told me that I should put it out. And I don't really want to like... I'm very grateful to Penguin who published my first book and I, I really like the editors and it was a good experience, but it's very slow and there's a lot of contracts. And I just don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to put it out for free. Um, I'll do like an audiobook version that'll probably be through iHeart and have ads and stuff on it. And then I'll just put up PDFs or EPUBs or some shit online. Kind of um, like, uh, you know, the war on everyone. Yeah, well, that I did crowdfund first, and I'm just going to give this away. I'll probably put up a thing if people want to, like, donate so I can pay the artist and, you know, whatever, buy a house. I don't know. Like, I, I don't um, – I make enough that, like, I feel weird asking people, and there's a limited crowdfunding pool of money, and I have a lot of friends who make their money on Patreon. Um, I'll probably have some sort of donation thing if people want – because it would be nice to, if I wanted to get a book deal later, be able to say this many people were willing to donate for this. Like that would be helpful, but I'd like it if I could set like a maximum donation cap. Cause that was the thing that really fucked me up about the war on everyone was there would be people who would donate like a ton of money. Mm. And I felt awful about that. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I mean, I needed it at the time I was coming out off of a year of living off my savings and basically not having any income more like 15 months. Um, but then I got a job very quick. Like I got hired as a salaried employee very quickly and I didn't need it. And I felt bad that people who didn't have much had been donating to me, which is again, why I'm kind of like, I would much rather take 
like obviously like it's capitalism there's no perfect solution i would much rather take a big money a big company's ad money if i can um than have people who may, might not have a lot yeah. give me some of what they yeah, have that's you know fair. yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah. I suppose it, I, as long as the uh, ads are are thing for things that you're cool with, right? Yeah, I have like a no list, right? Like I I won't sell brain pills. Like we've right. had some offers, but like that like <laughs> that was one Alex of my Jones. when I came in. <laughs> and iHeart's really good about that. That's like good. they actually have you get to fill out a form that you say like what are you comfortable with and what are you not comfortable with. That's good. Um yeah. So yeah. I uh Early on in the listening to uh, Behind the Bastards, I noticed that you actually there was an episode on something that some medical grifter, and you talked mm-hmm. about uh, uh, getting sources from like Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and I've I've been inv- involved in the skeptical community for quite a, bit, a while, so I was pretty. Uh, that was like a highlight of an episode for me. <laughs> oh, nice! Yeah. <laughs> Well, you run into some of these, especially some of these kind of less well-known grifters, you know, the folks that, like, aren't super famous, and often, like, Rational Wiki or Skeptic's Guide, like, those will be the best sources on that, because somebody who has just made it their life's mission to expose this person has tracked down, that was a big thing with one of the Bleached episodes, I, I forget exactly which it was, but it was some skeptic source where it was like, oh, shit, like this person's crusade is is fucking this guy up and he's collected all this information i better use it yeah uh, that's like uh uh jen gunter dr jen gunter she was on uh, yeah yeah she's great yeah yeah or she made it she's made it kind of her life's mission in a lot of ways to uh debunk everything gwyneth paltrow says <laughs> yeah i fucking love her i i love i love that kind of doctor um, who is just like so filled with righteous fury at those sorts of grifters. It's very, very fun. Um, yeah. I always enjoy them and I like the way they write. Um, cause they tend to be good writers and they tend to be just furious. Um, and it's, it's, it rules. Yeah. They don't take any, uh, they don't pull punches. <laughs> they call yeah. it bullshit when it's bullshit. And that, that's something that always drew me to the, like the science-based medicine yeah. and that stuff. Yeah, I'm a big, like, I know I have some friends who really hate doctors and I, some loved ones too, because they've had terrible, like, obviously most people in most professions aren't that great at it, you know? Right. Um, yeah, they're not the um, experts. They're the average. Yeah. People. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had really good experiences with doctors as a kid cause I was the sick kid and I just, I like doctors as a rule. Um, yeah, I think it's a good thing to do with your time. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh. One of the things I took from uh, hanging out in the skeptical community is what, like, when you have a medical question, ask your doctor. Don't ask Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, for the the love of God, don't ask Facebook. Yeah. It it changes. (laughs) It changes again when you get like Twitter famous because I can actually like throw shit up and like, then I'll get like a fucking doctor be like, like, here's my credentials. Like, right. here's what I think you should do, which was, I, I, my, my ex-wife um, had some really significant health problems and it was very helpful to be able to like, Oh God, we're spending so long just trying to set up appointments. I want to actually talk to a doctor about what kind of doctors I should be looking at for this. And it was great to be able to just like get yeah, advice from somebody. That's actually yeah. a use. For the one useful thing for Twitter fame. <laughs> yeah, that and yelling at airline companies when they fuck up oh, your flight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's uh, – we're a little far afield here, but I, I've complained on Twitter about local uh, businesses too. Uh, well, 
not local, but SaskTel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they respond. They always they always come back to you. I'm guessing that's some sort of Saskatchewan telecom company. It is so. That's our Saskatchewan yeah. Crown Corporation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have uh, our main utilities are all uh, technically government owned, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but they are run by like separate corporations also. That sounds like a perfect system. It's interesting. I mean, it, it sounds better than what we've got here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Our uh, our driver's insurance has promised, like, over the years, they've guaranteed that we would have the lowest insurance rates in all of Canada. So That's neat. Yeah, that's good. And that's, hey. that's something you can only do if you're the government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was always interesting to me, and uh, I spent a decent amount of time in Nova Scotia. The um, the the fucking government alcohol stores, like that, was so fucking bizarre. Like having to like go to the government to get your beer and your liquor. Um, I never quite got used to that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, actually Saskatchewan was one of the last holdouts for uh, giving contracts to private uh, liquor sales. <laughs> wild <laughs> yeah that's the thing i think california's gotten right is just if it's a store it can sell liquor in california that seems to be i i have no idea what the actual written laws are but everywhere <laughs> sells liquor in california and it's wonderful when i was uh growing up i had a friend who was from washington dc and he he moved to saskatchewan because his dad lived here and he used to tell us stories about oh you can in the united states you can walk down the street with your alcohol and all you gotta have is a paper bag in it <laughs> around it nobody says <laughs> i mean some cities yeah <laughs> yeah and we uh we were all just marveled at it like i mean <laughs> yeah was... i mean yeah we we need to have a more of a street drinking culture in this country it's an, it's absurd that that we don't i think the virus is helping with that a little bit because there was a point in which everybody was just drinking outside uh like like walking around with open containers right? and the cops seem to have all decided like, we're going to let this fly. So I, <laughs> I, I hope we can, I hope we can turn that into it. It's never made sense to me why you couldn't walk down the street drinking a beer. Um, like what do you, who gives a shit? Like, yeah, yeah. it really do- shouldn't make any difference. No, like I get, I get, you know, it, it, one of the few things that it like, yeah, I get not being able to drink and drive, even though it's super fun when you're not around people <laughs> in the middle of nowhere on country roads. <laughs> right. Uh, hoot to be drunk driving a big fucking, oh my God, like getting <laughs> wasted and driving a Jeep Wrangler in the middle of the woods is just such a good time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the yeah. favorite around here is uh, half tons. Uh, old, mm. old half tons with like, uh, that are made oh, out of steel. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that does sound like a good time. Yeah, Saskatchewan. Ah, uh, I mean, this is a, again. That's like one of these things. Saskatchewan is uh, still has the same drunk driving rate as we had twenty five years ago. People here just mm-hmm. keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> we, I guess, I, and I think that that's part of the culture is we kind of got uh, you know used to driving in the back roads and. To your yeah. from buddy's place to buddy's place after a few beer and yeah yeah and it's it's again this is kind of why municipalism uh, makes more sense to me because there are should be different rules for different places mm-hmm. uh, and I'm willing even willing to entertain that like yeah there, there there should be different rules about what kind of firearms are allowed or allowed to be carried in what ways depending on what kind of situation you live in right um, 
you know, I, I think that one of the problems we have continuously in this country is that most of those big laws tend to be blanket rules, blanket yeah. rules about what drugs are, blanket rules about what guns are legal for everybody, blanket rules about this, about that. And it's like, well, but does it make sense for like somebody in fucking downtown Washington, D.C. to live by the same exact same legal set as like somebody who lives out in the middle of fucking nowhere in like New York State? Right. Um, yeah. Why? Yeah. 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 And actually, I mean, that's a big thing that rural people really hate is that the laws that apply to the city get put on them as well. Like, yes, even uh, even with these uh, uh, restrictions about uh, coronavirus and, and uh, here, yeah. a lot of the people in the rural areas of Saskatchewan are pissed right off because most of our cases are in the cities and they're like, well, why mm -hmm. the hell do I have to worry about, you know, this and that and the other thing? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I and we're getting a lot more in rural areas now. Like it is, yes. everything's a little bit different when you talk about viruses. Yeah, that's um, right. But in general, yeah, I I think that one of the thing, one of the reasons that I tend to support the kind of changes I support is because I think that a lot of the violence in our political system is driven by people who are like, well, if they're in charge, they're going to tell me what to do. And what like that shouldn't be at stake. <laughs> like your like like your daily life. Like we should seek to have a system where as long as people's daily lives are like comfortable and healthy, it, 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 nothing's at stake for them really. Like we shouldn't have, like, it shouldn't be a thing where you're worried about your life radically changing because a different political party gets into office. Yeah. That's like, that's terrible. Unless <laughs> like, of course people are talking about <laughs> shooting each other. Unless it's improvement. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Like, it's just, it's so weird that that, I mean, I, I we're getting into this thing that I'm hearing it now from liberals too, where it's like, um, I don't know. I worry about like politics of, of revenge. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And we seem caught in that loop. Um, and then it's also seems like the people who aren't caught in that loop are going, well, we should like make up and embrace the Trump supporters. I'm like, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> like there's actually, you cannot just, you cannot be spiteful in your politics and also not forgive people who were trying to do a fascism, um, without <laughs> yeah, exactly. making sure that they've changed, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I guess anyway. speaking of fascism, uh, <laughs> when did you start like getting into that? I guess you said back when you were reading the, about the Holocaust, but when did you start like actually studying the stuff that's going on in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I uh, I was always I, I was you know I voted for Obama. Um, you know, it, it seemed like a pretty clear choice when Sarah fucking Palin was on the other ticket, right? Um. And uh, I was disappointed, like a lot of people were, about like the lack of meaningful change that we got. Uh, and I started to really, in the last couple of years of his term, understand how how thoroughly broken the system was. Like I was never a big fan of his or of the Democratic Party. I never cared about them much or thought they were particularly good at what they were doing. <laughs> right. But the level to which the system was broken became increasingly apparent to me around 2014, 2015. And a big part of that was that like my day job for Cracked was just talking to dozens of people every week, sometimes interviewing them about their lives, about their jobs, about what they did. And um, the more I learned, the more broken it all seemed. And 
I also had enough historical understanding to realize that like situations like ours, where you've got this increasing gap between the rich and poor, where things are very unstable um, and a lot of people live precarious lives economically and you have disinformation like we were starting to see gamergate was a big realization right. for me of like how bad the dis disinfo ecosystem was um i just started becoming aware in like 2014-15 like oh we're kind of i think the conclusion <laughs> i came to initially was like no reasonably free country is ever more than about four years away from fascism right <laughs> um that's scary. You know, within a capitalist system, at least. Within a capitalist system, at least. I think if you have a system that fundamentally addresses everybody's basic needs, you're a lot more resilient to fascism. Right, yeah, makes sense. Um, but we do not, and no one really does. Uh, certain countries are better at it than others. But <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not, not as far away um, as we might like. <laughs> yeah, and then Trump started to run. It was actually my colleague at Cracked, Adam Todd Brown, who wrote a really good and insightful article in either, I think it was 2015, comparing Trump to Hitler and calling a shot saying, I think this guy's going to win the Republican nomination. I think Adam called it before pretty much anyone wow. I, I'm aware of. Um, and he was right. Uh, and it became increasingly clear to me what was happening. I went to a Trump rally, like I talked, you know, went kind of undercover and talked to some Trump fans and heard some some pretty unsettling things. I remember there was a, a, a an American who's a British person, but he'd come here and he was now a citizen. Um, and I met him at a Trump rally and we were just talking and, you know, he's a huge Trump fan. And he was like, yeah, you know, I think he's going to win in 2016 and he's going to win in 2020. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, what about it after 2020? And he said, well, he's got kids, doesn't he? And like, it wasn't a joke. Like it right. was like this guy being wow. like, I want to see this family dynasty completely take over American politics forever. Amazing. And I mean, Maybe he was British and he's got a little bit of monarchism kind of implanted. In the <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, but it was like this, oh, this is going to be a problem. This is a and, real you know, problem, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy um, shit. So I, I started reading even more, not just about like the history of the Nazis, but about like author, like Paxton and stuff, people writing about fascism, you know? So I guess in in a sort of a way that brings us to it could happen here. <laughs> so yeah uh i guess for those who are haven't already listened to it that's your podcast about uh kind of what a civil war would look like in uh america yeah. and yep. what do you think are you there <laughs> uh we're not we're not there um I was more worried earlier in this year there were some mm -hmm. moments this year where i was absolutely certain um the shooting was going to start some, there were moments where I was like, it could happen any minute. You know, when I was out at some rallies where there would be groups of armed people yelling at each other and was like, well, this could be it. Yeah. <laughs> um, through a lot of people's very hard work and, uh, cowardice, thankfully, <laughs> thankful cowardice. We didn't, things didn't go as badly this year as they could have. And that means that we have, uh, hopefully another shot to, really pull our fat out of the fire. Cause it's, it's not, we're not in, we're not safe yet, you know, right. uh, because <laughs> Biden, we're not safe. Um, it is, I think broadly speaking good because it does give us whatever else more time. Um, I think Trump would have, if we, if, if, if Trump wouldn't have led to, you know, straight white outright civil conflict, um, I think it would have led to, 
you know, uh, for one thing, a hell of a lot of murders of left-wing activists by right-wing activists without really the government doing anything about it. Um, plus another crackdown on the, the state. But anyway, I, um, I, I think we're still on a path that worries me mm. because you still have two sides that are heavily armed and the left is increasingly well armed, which I think is broadly speaking good because you don't want to be the only side that doesn't have fucking guns. Um, <laughs> yeah. Bad. yeah, that's right. But more to the point, you have a system where people's needs aren't being met, right? Like the most worrying thing about this year is the Boogaloo boys, mm. not because I'm terrified of Boog boys, because most of them are, again, they don't actually want, they, you know, they might think they want to fight in a war, but they don't really. And they right. make the choice to not, right? They're like, there have been a it few comes to the who moment. have really wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There have been a few who have really wanted it and who have tried and who have, have you know, in some cases killed people or attempted attacks. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work. But the fact that there are, the thing that's most scary to me about the Boog boys, about the Boogaloo movement, is not the individuals who have actually tried something. It's the fact that tens of thousands and maybe even a couple of hundred thousand Americans were so are still so enamored with the idea of fighting in a civil war against their government or against their fellow Americans. Because like what that means is there's this large and growing chunk of the country, enough to be like the fastest growing subculture in the United States, maybe. QAnon's the only thing that would compete with it. Um that's just dedicated to wanting this to collapse because right. they feel like they feel like this society has so little to offer them. And that is a, that is a sign that your society has fucking failing, right? That this many people want it to collapse into violence. Don't like have a dream for how it could be better, but just want to blow it apart. Yeah. Um, that's a very bad sign and it's not going to get better because Joe Biden's the president, right? Because right. um, I don't think he's going to. I think it, there's a possibility that he and the Democratic Party could be pushed to making some of the meaningful changes that are necessary to improve people's material conditions. I don't think it's super likely. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think it's super. I mean, likely. you already yeah. you still have a lot of those, like you say, uh, like red Democrats. They, uh, yeah. Joe Manchin, refuse, will not vote yeah. for medical or for all stuff like that. So. Yeah. Yeah, no Medicare for all, like no cancellation of student yeah, loan debt. No, uh, yeah, no, no. I people seem to be talking at least more about UBI, but I think we're a while off from it. Um, you know, fundamentally, uh, we're dealing with this issue where we have built a culture around the wrong kind of individuality. Um, the kind of individuality that like leaves people lonely and breaks them and turns them into, um, something terrifying and something very sad. And that's where the mass shooters come from. That's where the Adam Waffen boys come from. That's where the boogs come from. Right. And it's why, as an aside, it's why soldiers in the United States military suffer PTSD at a rate higher than soldiers in any other military and any other civilization probably in history ever have. Yeah. Um, it's because it's a broken society and um, it's going to have to die, right? One way or the other. Um, my preference would be that it die peacefully and be replaced by something that's healthier and meets people's needs 
but what we have can't keep going and it can't just be patched up with duct tape. Um, it needs to be replaced with something better. Uh, and I hope that that can be done in a way that doesn't mean a tremendous number of people have to die. Um, cause again, I'm not a, I'm not an insurrectionist. I know what I've seen enough of war to not want that. Um, but also the status quo can't continue, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I recently, well, I, yeah, recently listened to a podcast called Recall, uh, from the CBC and mm-hmm. they talked about, uh, the FLQ in Quebec at, during the seventies and they were like, essentially they were, uh, attempting terrorist actions, uh, in order to, uh, gain Quebec independence and a socialist state and, and whatnot. And, um, one of the things that I, I really took from that is that it is in a sense possible to carry out terror like activities without actually harming people. But then you have the reaction of power that is going to, uh, almost always going to lead to more harm. And, and then, I mean, the FLQ, they ended up killing somebody. <laughs> it kind <Yeah>. of <laughs> cast the whole uh, movement into the, the, uh, the, dustbin of history but <laughs> it's it was yeah i mean it, it's a shame that uh, hakim bay is such a creep because poetic terrorism is actually a really important concept um when it comes to kind of breaking people out of negative thought patterns and maybe putting them on new tracks of decisions you know i i i tend to be a big advocate of that kind of 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 activism you know there's yeah i mean I guess in the day uh, of the FLQ, it was they could they could put out a pamphlet and it would get widespread and people would read it. And Mm -hmm. if they could get their message out to more people. But now everybody's got a message on the Internet. Right. And and, yeah, uh, it's hard to compete with uh, so many differing narratives, I guess. Yeah, that's the biggest problem we have, the most immediate problem that we have, even more immediate than climate change, because it's part of what makes it impossible to deal with climate change. Right. The, um, the, the, the sheer – what the internet and social media in particular has done in making it impossible for there to be any kind of broadly agreed upon standard of truth, you know? Um, if there were a broadly agreed upon standard of truth that was based in scientific fact, we wouldn't be, we'd only be arguing about how to fight climate change, yeah, right? That's not right. about the need, um, and not about the imminence of the need. Um, and I don't know how to do that without, you know, Facebook servers sliding into the ocean, um, <laughs> and then Twitter servers sliding into the ocean. And then, you know, yeah, um, fair. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and even it, then, it, like the damage is done, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, in order to reverse it, you first have to stop it because yeah. nothing that these companies do will ever reverse it. Right. Yeah, because right. it's profitable for what's happened to continue happening. Well, that's, that's, um, that's right. They just, they just started banning QAnon groups, right? Because yeah, I mean, it was great for them. They could get their eye- yeah, eyeballs on the seat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So was uh, so was the Boogaloo Boys. It wasn't until they started shooting people that like Facebook said, "Okay, we got to do something Hold about on. this." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you did you ever during the this past couple weeks like legitimately worry about uh? the change in power or the transition from Biden or from Trump to Biden. Cause I know myself, like my partner is from, uh, uh, 
Africa. So she has witnessed coups and, and she has seen different uh, countries. She, uh, the president just decides not to give a power and the military yeah. backs him. And part of me was like, but there's nothing about America that says the military will just decide to, you know, not support the president and and be you know totally just a dictatorship now <laughs> yeah you know i i, I wasn't really i wasn't it, it particularly worried that trump would succeed in his coup but the fact that he did a coup uh worries the hell out of me because and there's been a number of people who have lived through coups who have written articles to this effect there's a kind of damage that it does to the idea that uh, the idea of free elections, the idea of of elections in general, that can't really be undone. And so again, he on his way out, he set up a series of dominoes that are going to fall and that are going to, you know, fuck things up. People are going to die. Uh, it's it's going to be bad. The next elections are going to be bad. Every election from here on out until there's some sort of shift change culturally is going to be bad because now the precedent has been set that elections aren't real if right. your guy loses yeah you know <laughs> and you did see bits and pieces of that when trump won but not embraced at a high level right um not not really not in the same way um and that's bad like i don't care if you're a marxist leninist who thinks that democracy is a bad system like i'm not it's certainly not perfect or a, a republic or whatever is perfect. Like it's bad that this has happened. It makes it more dangerous for all of right, us. It yeah. makes it harder to create positive change. It's just, it's a bad thing that a bad person did because all he's ever done is hurt people. Cause he's trash, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a good place to leave it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, they're all trash. Like uh, Joe Biden's only I mean, he is actually a lot better, but he's still trash. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's the difference between like Donald Trump is the kind of trash where like you left a fucking turkey in the fridge when you went out for like a three week vacation in Morocco and the power died. Um, and so that turkey was just like boiling in it like like that's <laughs> that's Donald Trump trash. And Joe Biden trash is just like um you know, you fucking, uh, you have like your pipes are bad and you can't flush toilet paper. So you've had to fill a bag up with like toilet paper that's got shit on it. Like that's the <laughs> Joe Biden kind of trash. Neither of those is good. <laughs> Neither room's good. I would rather take out the shit trash than the rotting turkey. Yeah, for sure, that's true. For yeah. sure. Yeah. But still gross trash in both cases. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so I guess thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a good chat. Where can just in case people who listen to this haven't heard of you before, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me in. Uh, I have a podcast called Behind the Bastards. You can find it anywhere you can find podcasts. I have a new podcast about the Portland uprising this year called Uprising: A Guide from Portland. You can find that also everywhere there are podcasts, and I'm on Twitter at I Write Okay. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to find out more from me, you can go to anchor.fm slash skeptical leftist. If you want to read the show notes for these episodes, which sometimes are kind of comprehensive, but sometimes are not, 
Uh, you can go to skepticalleftistpod.wordpress.com. Or if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash skepticalleftist. My handle on Twitter is at Hardcore Skeptic. And you can find me on Facebook at The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist or search for one of the million Corey Johnstons that are on Facebook. Thanks and have a good one. Thank you.